welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today, um, I'd like to say that I planned this out perfectly, but um, it actually was a fortuitous coincidence. Um, My guest today is a plastic surgeon who has written a book called um, Childhood Abuse, Body Shame, and Addictive Plastic Surgery, The Face of Trauma. And why I say it's a fortuitous uh, coincidence is because, as you will hear, all of these uh, these connections, the connection between childhood abuse and body shame and addictive plastic surgery, can also account for what we saw uh, in the life of Michael Jackson, whose uh, anniversary it is today, that is the anniversary of his death. So this, in a rather gallows humor kind of way... <laughs> Uh, came out perfectly. Um, Dr. Constantian is a plastic surgeon, as I said, in New Hampshire. Um, He has faculty appointments at the University of Wisconsin and the University of Virginia. He's the author of more than 100 professional journal articles and book chapters and two previous textbooks, including one called Rhinoplasty, Craft, and Magic, which also fits perfectly with Michael Jackson. But before we get to Michael Jackson, (laughs) welcome to the show, Dr. Constantian. And um, what I'd like to start off with, because this is a very interesting story, I'd like to start off with you talking about how you, as a plastic surgeon, got into looking into childhood abuse and so on. Well, hello, Dr. Carroll. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, this is interesting because I, when I came to New Hampshire 41 years ago, I was the only plastic surgeon in the state except for three at Dartmouth, and there was over a million people in the state. So I just came to be the local guy. I was going to be the Doc Adams on Gunsmoke and do whatever the town needed and disappear <laughs> into you know, oblivion, and that was, gonna, that was fine with me to be the, just serve an area that was unserved. Um, but I got interested in nasal surgery, and because, it, although that was only a small part of my practice at the beginning, across all cultures, body image disorders and body dysmorphic disorder, where people are really disturbed by, by a body, by a, a nasal, in this case, um, deformity that is slight or imaginary or perceived, and they become obsessed and their lives become disrupted. Across all cultures, the feature that's most affected in body dysmorphic disorder is the nose. So as I began to see more and more rhinoplasty patients, I began to, cross, began to come across a few of these. And in the mid-1980s, as a young surgeon, I operated on three of them without having made the diagnosis ahead of time. One was a university professor who gave up her job and became a recluse. One was a doctor's wife who also stayed in her room and wouldn't come out of the house. And when she came to the office, she was, would rail at me abusively and, and uh, tell, say horrible things about what I'd done to her. And another was a man who tried to cut off his nose after surgery. And all of these people, fortunately, he only lacerated the skin. He didn't do any damage. But all of these people looked totally normal to me. And afterwards, they were so upset 
that the things, not only were they angry at me, furious at me, but I couldn't reason with them. I couldn't show them photographs and say, no, your nose doesn't look bizarre. Look at the pictures. It doesn't point up toward the ceiling. No, the bump that you see isn't really there. To them, it was a complete surgical problem, and it was all my fault, and I did this to them. And any, any efforts of mine to try to get them to counseling, oh, no, are you saying I'm crazy? I'm not crazy. Look at this. You did this. Look at me. So... Uh, I thought, I've got to find out what I did. It really distressed me. And I started reading the mental health literature. And body dysmorphic disorder had really just come out in the, in the DSM-3, I think, in 1987. So it was a brand new problem. And the, the disorder was very well described. In fact, a little curious fact is that it was described first in the plastic surgery literature in 1960 by the surgeon who trained me at the University of Virginia. He was very interested mm. in, in body image disorders. I had a psychiatrist in his department. Um, but what troubled me was that although the, the characteristics of the disorder were so well described, no one could explain to me where it came from. It just like happened out of the blue. And still, that's the prevailing opinion, that people are normal until they become 14 or 16, and all of a sudden this happens. They become obsessed about something. It distresses them. Their self-esteem goes down. They start developing social anxiety disorder or obsessive-compulsive disorders or become recluses, and, and they have all kinds of disruption in the family. They stop going to work or school, and the worst ones commit suicide, and still nobody knows why this happens. So I went along like that for some years, um, sort of stuck in this problem, thinking that the population described in the mental health literature is not the population plastic surgeons see, because we see people who are fully functional, on the surface at least, who come in wanting operations. They're not the housebound, distraught people in the mental health literature. And I couldn't understand how something like this could happen out of the blue. And then I had a man come to me for his third or fourth rhinoplasty, who said to me, you know, I had body dysmorphic disorder, but I'm all better now. And I, mm. I liked him instantly. Uh, and we talked a little bit, and I said, if you get me a letter from your therapist saying that you're stable enough to go through surgery, I'll operate on you. And I did, and he was a very easy patient. Uh, and he said to me, I said to him afterwards, if I send you a letter with a series of questions, will you tell me what it was like being inside body dysmorphic disorder because most surgeons never meet anybody like you. He said, sure. Uh -huh. So he sent me back this four-page, single-spaced letter describing the most amazing kind of childhood abuse by his stepfather who made him submit starting at age seven to photographs simply to show him that there was something wrong with the way his nose looked. And at first he said, I didn't believe him, but by the time he was in high school, um, he was obsessed about his nasal appearance, and he had surgery, and he had another surgery, and he got more reclusive wait, wait, and more upset. Wait, wait, can I wait? I need, yep. wait. Sure. I need to stop you for a minute. You're saying <laughs> okay. that the stepfather um, subjected this boy at the time to this. It was the stepfather who was telling him that his there was something wrong with his nose. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes. Yes, and he made him submit to photographs so he could prove to him in the photographs that there was something wrong with the way his nose looked. And the little boy said, it's nothing wrong. And then the father, stepfather kept showing him pictures and taking more pictures. 
And he said, pretty soon I began drawing pictures of my nose and trying to make the tip look better. And then I would scribble through the pictures and I'd get very angry. And little by little, he won me over until I believed I looked deformed. And so after all these operations, he started getting treatment for body dysmorphic disorder, put it on a bunch of medications, ended up with an idiosyncratic reaction to one of them, ended up on a ventilator, a breathing machine, and then finally got, ended up in a halfway house for schizophrenics because in the meantime, his brother had committed suicide, his parents had gotten divorced, his mother wouldn't let him back in the house. I mean, the whole family story is chaotic. And he said, there's this little sentence in about the fourth page where he says, I suddenly realized that my problem was not my nose. It was that I was a 30-year-old guy, and I had never finished school, and I didn't have a job, and I didn't have a girlfriend. And I would be in situations like this forever unless I did something about it, which is a remarkable epiphany. Most BDD patients never have that kind of self-realization. But I thought, okay, in one case at least, childhood abuse is connected to this, and the, and the, the cauldron out of which BDD comes exists beforehand. It's not, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. And then I began to do well, research, and I began paying attention to the revision patients that okay. I saw. Was there, okay, was there any um, physical or sexual abuse involved? Not that he told me. So did it was he ever emotional figure out abuse. what it was? Emotion, right. But did he ever yes. figure out what it was, of like why the stepfather didn't like his nose? Did the stepfather, he said his the stepfather, stepfather was have, a wait, parking lot attendant. Step, I'm sorry? The stepfather, go ahead. The stepfather was a the parking lot attendant. The stepfather had a very poor opinion of himself. He was a poorly uh-huh. educated man. He was a part, worked as a parking lot attendant. And now as he reflects upon it, either as an adult, he thinks it was really all about the stepfather. But emotional abuse is, in all my patients, I've done research on this, it's the number one kind of abuse that occurs in my own patient population. So even though it may not be as dramatic as physical or sexual abuse, I thought about it and I figure, you know, you can, you can berate somebody all day long, much more often than you could abuse them in other ways. Yes, yes. But, okay, let me just ask you some more. Um, did the fa- stepfather uh, not like his own nose? Yes, he did not. Um, okay, so really the stepfather was projecting onto your patient um, bad feelings that he had about his own nose. Yes, and about his own self, sure. Right, right. Yep. Okay, was yep. there any kind of an ethnic thing, like um, that, the, that your patient had, uh, of course, <laughs> I guess maybe it would be hard for you to know since you thought, saw him after three or four <laughs> or two or three rhino, previous rhinoplasties, but um, did he have, do you know, if he had originally a kind of ethnic nose that the stepfather didn't like? Uh, well, he said, the, it's interesting, the stepfather, he mentions in his letter to me, the stepfather was Greek, the patient himself, his mother was Jewish, or the patient was Jewish, because the stepfather was not biological. So, um, and he's shown me the patient, has brought me photographs of his original unoperated appearance. And he had a bridge yes. with a bump on it and a kind of a flat tip. It was a, an operate, a, a nose that, that a lot of people would find they want, uh, they want to have surgery for. 
Uh-huh. So it wasn't it wasn't normal okay. normal nasal appearance. That's oh. I see that in, oh, a, okay. in a lot of other patients come in with sort with. Uh, whenever I see a patient or have a patient call who says they've had prior surgery, my staff has been instructed to ask the patients to bring in photographs of what their noses looked like before they had any surgery, because yes. I use it as an educational tool. And one of the things right. that became, got me even more interested in this research was that a lot of these patients who had four or five or six operations would bring in photographs of noses that originally looked totally normal and that the patients knew were normal. The bridge was straight, no bump, no asymmetry, no breathing problems. So I'd say, what were you trying to accomplish in your first operation? Well, my mother said I was the ugliest baby she ever saw. Or my father used to say, how come you're not as pretty as your sister? Or someone said to me, you have to have your nose changed to look more acceptable to the family or to look marketable so you're prettier. Um, Or Mm -hmm. one man said to me, I had surgery on my nose so people would love me. So I began to think Mm -hmm. the original indication had nothing to do with a deformity. And to me, that's, that's the real key to body dysmorphic disorder. Uh-huh. That's what drives the original operation. Right, right. So, well, that's very interesting. So, so you're saying, but in this case, you're saying that his original nose was imperfect and was, it was reasonable for him to have wanted plastic surgery for his original nose. Yes, but it was never driven and by him. Step- it was driven by the uh, uh, criticism he got. He may right, never have right. had surgery like he, he if the father stepfather left him alone. Mm-hmm. Right. Very, very interesting. Um, okay. So, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I want to hear more about all these other people, but um, like one question I had from earlier on, these three patients who started you on this research and that ultimately led to the book, um, did they... Did any of them ever uh, sue you for malpractice? You said they were blaming you. No, they didn't. They were they were angry with me. Um, I saw them. I followed them for a year. Uh, they actually all had very good surgical results because I teach about rhinoplasty. As you noted, I wrote a textbook on two volume textbook about it. So I've been teaching about mm-hmm. rhinoplasty at our national meetings for more than 30 years, and any of them would be good teaching cases because the results were so good, and yet the patients were very distraught, uh, and, and very, it, was, it were personal attacks. It wasn't, my nose is uh-huh. a little crooked, it's how could you have done this to me? You've destroyed my family, you've destroyed, taken away all my friends, you've taken away my joy in living. At, every day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, my nose swells so much I have to go home, this sort of stuff that, that, that doesn't huh. make sense. In fact, when my book came out, hmm. um, someone went on, uh, a patient of mine that I think I know who it was, went on and said, 10 years ago, this man operated on me, and ever since then, I haven't been able to read. I used to love to read, <laughs> but now I can't read anymore. And it was so, the, the review was all about me and how horrible she thought I was as a person, and Amazon took it down because it wasn't a book review. But I thought, 
I don't even care if they leave it up because what she's saying is so ridiculous. How can a rhinoplasty keep, uh-huh. keep her from reading for 10 years? But this is, this uh-huh. is the kind of irrational state of mind some of these patients get into. That it never, in the beginning, it's never about the deformity, which is why surgery is so notoriously unsuccessful in patients with body dysmorphic disorder. And then afterwards, it's frequently still not about the deformity. It's about the surgeon and what he or she did to the patient. So it's it's very, very you know, the patient doesn't say, I've got a little bump, can you fix it? Or it's a little crooked, can you fix it? It's, you know, you've destroyed my life. Strangers stop me on the street and say, how did you, how come you, how did you get your face disfigured? My father cries every time he sees me, and you did this. Uh-huh, very, uh-huh. It's distressing. It's very well, distressing need- for a surgeon, for all surgeons yes. who care. Yes. Well, we need to take a break now, but when we come back, we'll talk more about your book, this phenomenon, um, and I'm I'm gonna I particularly want to ask you about sexual and physical abuse, not just emotional. Uh, sure. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Constantian. His book is called Childhood Abuse, Body Shame, and Addictive Plastic Surgery: The Face of Trauma. So stay tuned. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. Mark Constantian. He is a plastic surgeon in New Hampshire. 
which I must tell you, you mentioned that at the beginning about, um, you know, wanting to serve the state. But, I mean, I will admit, um, since my office is in Beverly Hills, <laughs> the, uh, the plastic surgery capital of the world, I think. Um, That's right. I, 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 <laughs> and here you are talking but, to me in New Hampshire to find well, out about yes, this problem. I mean, like, did, did you not want to work very much <laughs> when you moved there? Um, no, I, I, well, as you can imagine, there's no plastic surgeon for uh, 200 miles. I was busy right away. I was operating five days a week, but I was doing a lot of hand surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the earliest kinds of breast reconstruction I did as they moved along, uh, lots of trauma, lower extremity trauma, motorcycle accidents, snowblower injuries, facial trauma, and ah. then cosmetic surgery. So that, that built, and as I began teaching and getting interested in rhinoplasty and teaching about it, I began getting referrals from other surgeons. This was long before the Internet. So all my practice really built on patient and surgeon referral. And it began to crowd out the other things. And then other plastic surgeons came in who wanted to do the other stuff. So we began to share Uh it. So I I wanted to be very busy because there was nobody in the area. That's why I came to New Hampshire. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's true. I was thinking more just of cosmetic, but of course there are all these other um, reasons uh, to have a plastic surgeon um, operate that's on right. you. That's true. Um, I wanted to talk in this segment about, uh, you, you've been talking about emotional abuse in your previous patients and the ones who um, ultimately sent you on your way to do this research in the book. Um, I want to talk about physical and sexual abuse. And um, you were saying during the break that you did uh, the test of adverse childhood events. So talk about what that is and and, um, what you found. In the um, last decade, I think, at Kaiser Permanente, they devised a test for different kinds of adverse childhood experiences that they did on 17,000 of their general medical patients. And what they discovered was two things. One was that childhood, adverse childhood experiences are extremely common because their population is a, a well-insured, mostly white, uh, 10% uh, black, 10% Asian, employed, middle-class population. And they discovered looking for common kinds of Tend to common kinds of childhood abuse or neglect, emotional abuse, being insulted by your parents a lot, physical abuse, sexual abuse, of course, emotional neglect where nobody cares if you're around, physical neglect, you don't have enough to eat or wear, um, violence against the mother, mental illness in the family, uh, drug abuse or alcohol abuse in the family, divorce. Uh, incarceration of a family member, suicide. I think those were the 10. And they discovered to their amazement that 64% of this general medical population had at least one answer. They couldn't believe it. And then they discovered that the more answers you had, the more health problems you had as an adult. So if you had six or more answers, your life expectancy went down by 20 years. Your chance of suicide went up by 50 times if you had more than six answers. Um, the more answers you had, the more heart disease, the more high blood pressure, the more diabetes, the more cancer, the more multiple sclerosis, not just depression and smoking and 
uh, teen pregnancy, the kinds of things you might associate with disrupted childhoods, but but adult health problems that might take 20 or 30 or 40 years to manifest. It's something, somehow when the brain is traumatized and stressed at a very young age, the whole endocrine and stress system gets wired wrong and never equilibrates unless people go through trauma work. So I had identified trauma by just by taking histories in a lot of my patients, and I wrote two papers about it in one of our journals in, 19, uh, in 2014. But I wanted to know exactly what kind of trauma it was. What I discovered in general was that when patients started out, when patients came to me having had multiple rhinoplasties, and they started out with noses that they knew were normal, but they had the surgery for some of the reasons I've mentioned, because they weren't as pretty as a sister or, or as athletic as a brother or nobody in the family liked them. Um, the prevalence of childhood abuse or neglect in general, an undefined childhood abuse and neglect, was 90% in those patients. It, and this was just what people mm. told me in consultation. Mm. Uh, it would, it would, some, somehow it would come up. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to go back and do this adverse childhood event study. So I did it on 218 patients. The first 175 are in the book, and the, the rest have now collected all the data. And what I discovered was that in the, in the you know, this is a mixed practice. I still have reconstructive patients who have, for example, facial cancers or hand surgery. In those patients, the prevalence was about 70%, still high if you look at if you if you guess what it must be in the population, I would never have guessed seventy percent of my patients had had difficult childhoods, but in the patients who had undergone surgery for noses that they knew were normal, it was over ninety percent, and the commonest mm. ones by far emotional abuse, but as you go down the list, um, the um, physical abuse um, is still. Um, uh, at about uh, about thirty percent, sexual abuse at at over twenty five percent, physical neglect um, uh, very common at about twenty percent. The common the ones where my there were five areas where my patients were much higher higher than the Kaiser patients. Emotional abuse was five times higher than it is in the Kaiser general medical population. There it was about eleven percent. It's about fifty percent in my patients. Um, emotional neglect was three times higher. It was about 40%. So nobody caring if you're around in the family, nobody paying attention to you. Substance abuse, alcohol or drug abuse in the family, mental illness in the family, um, and uh, um, violence against the mother. So those were the, those were the five areas where my patients were much higher than in general. I've got I've got three other things on the list myself, so it's the, it is very common. The other thing that I discovered was also that even in my small population, the higher the number, the higher the chance of adult health problems. For every additional ACE score, every additional adverse childhood event, the, the likelihood of a, one of my patients being a drug abuser or alcoholic went up 30%. So if you go from a one to a two, you're 30% more likely to be a drug abuser or alcoholic. So when I started giving this lecture to surgeons, they'd say, well, good, so we do this adverse childhood event study, and we can tell which patients to operate on, right? And I said, no, it doesn't mm -hmm. work like that. 
because I also, I only tested post-operative patients for two reasons. One, these are two, I thought, the questions are too intrusive to ask of someone in my waiting room wanting surgery. So I only wanted to test patients that already knew me, that had gone through surgery, that had recovered. And um, I also wanted to be able to put the results in perspective. What kind of people were they? How demanding were they of the staff? What were their personalities like? How happy were they with the results of surgery? And, and look, of course, at their health problems. And I also scored the patients on what I called resilience without recognizing that that's a whole area of mental health now is resilience. But I was, I was testing, I was scaling them basically on how well they ran their lives, how their self-esteem was, how, um, how good boundaries they had, whether they could contain themselves, whether they, whether they distorted ideas as I listened to them, whether they lived in lives of moderation. So I discovered that resilience was a modifying factor, a modulating factor. It was like the antidote to childhood trauma because I discovered that even though I'd tested hundreds of patients, I could not predict someone's trauma score even though I knew them and had operated on them and watched them go through the whole surgical experience. Some of the people mm. that had, I thought, the most, the most wonderful patients, the most grateful, the most easy patients, everybody in the office loved them, they check off eight out of ten things on the list. And I'd see them the next time and I'd say, you had a horrible childhood. How come you're not a homeless person? Well, they all had the same story, a variation on this. I had a grandmother. I had a coach. I had a teacher. I had a minister. Somebody in the family outside the destructive inner circle that believed in them, that had confidence in them, and that mentored them. And that's how they escaped. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, so when these uh, plastic surgeons were saying this, you know, do we, we can give a test to the patients beforehand, and you said no because what? Because they wouldn't, for the same reason you didn't do it, that patients would feel uncomfortable uh, answering this thing, and then they wouldn't have surgeon with that surgeon, surgery with no, that surgeon? No, I, I said no because even if the patients gave honest answers, a high trauma score doesn't mean they'll be won't be a good patient because a lot of people uh-huh. are resilient and they can be wonderful functional adults even coming out of horrible circumstances as children. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Because yes. resilience is like the uh, antidote to trauma. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. Um I mean, well, I guess I guess uh if they gave them a test that not only tested for the um adverse childhood events, but also for resilience, maybe. Did anyone bring that up? Or what, if, what if we did this, doctor? I think that's possible if you, if you knew you were getting honest answers. But it's, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to get that. Um, there's, I don't know if you ever, have you ever talked about uh, cosmetic genital surgery on your, on your show? Um, not that I can recall. I think I would recall it, no. Um, it's very, becoming very popular. And the minute I hear this, um, this trend going on, a lot of interest by patients, a lot of interest by physicians of various specialties, urologists and plastic surgeons, I say to myself, this, is, this can't be, there, there has to be an, an element of 
sexual abuse in some of these patients because most of them right, want to go back right. to a pre-pubertal appearance. And the one mm-hmm. study that even looked at this said that the prevalence of what they called uh, sexual trauma was 0.2%. It can't be 0.2%. It's over 20% right. in my rhinoplasty patients. And the problem is that they were using it as an intake form. So if somebody's sitting in uh-huh. the office looking for surgery, they're not going to uh-huh. answer uh, such intimate questions. Yeah. So I'm an after yeah. one of the really premier surgeons in this area in my field and said to her, we have to do this study together because we can't just be technicians in this operation. We have to know about these right. patients and make sure that we're advising well, them like surgeons should be advising them. Yes, and, you know, I would even suggest, and I'll tell you why I'm suggesting this, um, but I would even suggest that the, even in your study of patients after the surgery, um, I think that 20% or over, or over 25%, you said, um, was, uh, I think that's an underreporting. And here's why. Because, and I don't know whether you came across this in your, um, in your research or, um, or in your own research or the research you did uh, in terms of other papers and so on, but um, the, according to Freud <laughs> and according to uh, all of my um, experience with patients, um, the nose, the reason why uh, the nose is, is especially connected with trauma and so on um, is because the nose is a, is a representation upward of the penis. That's right. Um, and so the nose is, is a constant, more than any other kind of plastic surgery, you know, any other part of the body, well, maybe not genitals, but you know what I mean, the typical, the usual kinds of plastic surgery, mm-hmm. um, nothing has as much connection to sex as the nose for both men and women. Um, and so, so it is, uh, one would expect, I mean, it, it makes sense that people who, especially when they keep having their nose operated on, that they are trying to work out some kind of sexual trauma that happened to them when they were a child. I think that's true in a lot of cases. I've thought about that a lot because it's the constant question among plastic surgeons. Why are the rhinoplasty patients so legendarily the worst, most difficult ones? Why is BDD so common in these patients? But as I was doing all my reading, I read quite the width of mental health literature. There's 830 references in the, in the book. Uh, not, to, not to overturn anything. I just wanted to understand what was out there. And I thought, okay, suppose any kind of the kinds of abuse that we've been talking, abuse or neglect that we're talking about, brings on a common denominator of shame. And there's something defective about me. I'm not as good as other people. I got beaten, but I deserved it. Uh, my parents got divorced, but I, was, but I deserved it. I was, I was criticized all the time, so there must be something wrong with me or hit all the time. Um, so if you get to your teen years and you feel that you're defective, the most common kind of shame that is connected to childhood abuse or neglect, this is in the mental health literature, is body shame in, in contrast to to. Um, behavioral shame or characterological shame. So the minute you attach your feelings of defectiveness to something about your appearance, plastic surgery will be an option. 
And if you're a teenager, what other oper- operation is there? You're too young to have a facelift. Mm-hmm. So the rhinoplasty is going to be common for that reason also, and the ethnic reasons as well. But I think you're right. Certainly the Freudian, um, there's a Freudian component. The, the trauma issue, the more I look at it, uh, there's two. Well, there's two things that I. I, I well, I'll wait, add wait. Let's hold. Let's hold right. off the okay. two things because we have to take a break. But we'll okay. leave everybody on a cliffhanger. Um, okay. And we will come back to that. My guest is Dr. Mark Constantian. Again, his book is called Childhood Abuse, Body Shame, and Addictive Plastic Surgery: The Face of Trauma. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about uh, the face of trauma. Um, that is the subtitle of the book by my guest, Dr. Mark Constantian, um, a plastic surgeon in New Hampshire. I bet you're going to get a whole bunch of people calling you <laughs> with, no, with requests for rhinoplasties. Um, well, before the break, if, we if were, so, we'll take good care of them. What? If so, we'll take good care of them. <laughs> before the break, you were going to be telling us two things that were involved in what? Take it away. The two, two little points that I'll make briefly. One is that still in the mental health literature, and those of us trying to understand body dysmorphic disorder, it's still looked at as something that arises out of the blue. Even the brand new textbook on BDD has one paragraph 
about childhood trauma, and it's called perceived trauma. And it relates right back to what you were saying about how you think sexual abuse is underreported. And they said, we have had reports in this one paragraph of people who say they've had bad childhood experiences, but we can't, we can't say that this is, we know this to be true because we don't have any, any interview or videotape evidence of the trauma. And I thought, how archaic. If we looked at the Me Too movement with the same, held it to the same standard, that would be crazy. So my, right. my belief after talking to these patients and my research is that, that the childhood abuse and neglect come first. All the family problems, all the self-esteem problems, all the depression and the shame are there ahead of time. And then it's manifested in any of a million different ways. As I read the mental health literature, so many different kinds of adult problems can be traced back to adverse childhood experiences. And I began to think, these papers are all the same. It just depends on who's doing the investigation. If the manifestation is, is skin injury, we call it cutting. If it's eating, we call it an, uh, an obesity or, or, a, uh, or anorexia. If it's some kind of vague pain, we call it fibromyalgia. If it's self-injurious behavior, uh, we call it, um, or self-damning self behavior, we call it uh, borderline personality disorder. If it's a search for amnesia, we call it drug or alcohol abuse. So if the, if the deformity is not obvious to the person, uh, the observer, we call it body dysmorphic disorder. But they're all, all those problems come out of the stem of childhood abuse, where they can be traced in the mental health literature to childhood abuse or neglect. And out of that comes shame, and then it just depends on which, which way you decide to medicate your pain or how you manifest it. I think they're all connected. I don't think BDD is anything different except another manifestation of another kind of obsessive behavior with recurrent uh, re-experiencing and avoidant behavior and so on. In many ways, it's just like PTSD, which is also trauma-related. So that's how I, I put this all together mm-hmm. in one big picture. That's the way it seems to me. What do you think of that? Mm-hmm. Since you're the, you're the mental health maniac <laughs> and I'm not. Well, I mean, I, well, you're talking to, um, I, am, uh, I am a, I do psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Um, and I studied at the Anna Freud Clinic in London. So um, <laughs> I have found and uh, keep finding um, how of, you know, childhood experiences are what dictate everything. So, um, you know, pe- people, I mean, people are still squeamish. They don't want to believe um, in, in Freud, you know, and they want to think that his findings are outdated and so on. Right. It, right. I can tell you with all the patients that I have treated in my whole history so far of treating patients, and that's quite a number, not only treating, but... Um, as an expert witness and, and doing uh, various uh, just uh, evaluations of patients who I don't treat or aren't uh, a case, um, time and time again it is proven that um, aspects of their childhood or, or traumas in their childhood determine who they become. So there's, there's no question about that. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, what, what you're saying, um, of course, makes sense. And let's, let's even apply this now to, um, to uh, Michael Jackson, since it is the anniversary of his death, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, what, now, I know he was never your patient, but what, 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 
how would you, what would you, what do you have to say about him in the context of this, what we've been talking about in childhood abuse and or childhood, any kind of abuse that you want to talk about? Well, the, certainly his childhood abuse is well documented and you mentioned it in your show a couple of months ago. Um, and it manifested in, in repetition of a lot of the sort of bizarre behaviors that he, that he may have experienced or adverse experiences he may have had. There's a, there was a very good documentary that I was actually in as a briefly done a couple of years ago uh, about plastic surgery called Take My Nose, Please by Joan Cron, who used to, um, used to be a writer for The New Yorker and then she was the beauty editor of Allure magazine. It's a very good look at three female comedians going through, two female comedians going through plastic surgery, but it's all about women comedians in plastic surgery, Phyllis Diller and uh, uh, Joan Rivers and so on, and um, Toady Fields, who died after cosmetic surgery, and all of the, the self-esteem issues that drove them, and that's, what, that's why I was commenting about it. But she has a clip of there of Michael Jackson being interviewed, and someone said to him, when your father's, he said, my father used to say, well, you didn't get that nose from me. And the interviewer said, how did you feel when he said that? And he just closed his eyes. You could see he was sort of trancing out back to his childhood. And he said, it just made me want to die. So I think uh-huh. his, his, the, the kinds of bad experiences that he had were partly um, focused on his appearance, the way he remembers them. And he spent his life trying to transform himself. I've had patients who tell me, I, I want to keep having plastic surgery till I'm not the child who was abused anymore. Uh, that, 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 mm. that might apply in that situation, but certainly the, carrying him beyond the point where he looked good um, is a problem. I know two of his surgeons, uh, so I know a little bit sort of firsthand, and I know from... Uh, I know from one of them that he had had even had essentially sham operations where Michael wanted something done and he would go to sleep and the surgeon would make an incision, sew it up again and never do anything. And as bizarre as that sounds, I've had patients who want a procedure done so badly that even when I say you don't need that and tell them they get very, very angry at me because it's the idea that, that anything I could do even if it's uncomfortable, um, and you can tell me if it's reenactment of a, of a trauma, I don't know, but, but if, even if it, if it doesn't accomplish anything, the fact that I'm going to excise something or make a scar or do something and put stitches in, the, the procedure itself has some kind of therapeutic impact for these people. I won't do it, but, yeah. and when I don't, some of them get very angry at me like I, and, and say, you know, you've, you've deserted me because they feel like I'm withholding something that they need. It's really sad. Yes. One, one was a singer. He yes. used to send me her records when she, when she released them, and, and she wanted some little thing done. When she came back to have it done, I said, the problem's disappeared. This isn't the good news. You, know? you don't need a scar there. I want you to do it anyway, she said. And when I refused, she got mm-hmm. very upset. So it, people yes, are and you know, endlessly complicated. The problem is that they can always find... The, the problem is that they can always find a plastic surgeon who is um, less ethical, who will do whatever a patient wants, you know? That's right. But I want to get back That's to right. Michael Jackson for a second because I want to talk about how um, uh, he, in fact, uh, well, there, not only was he emotionally abused, we know that his father was um, 
the main emotional abuser, but there is also some evidence that he was sexually abused as well. And his mm-hmm. um, obsession with his nose and his repeated rhinoplasties um, clearly had both a um, both an ethnic um, base, you know, his wanting to sort of disown his ethnicity, as well as um, uh, the nose being the penis uh, projected upwards and really wanting to try to fix his penis and fix his sexuality rather than um, just his nose. Right. Well, his, his original um, nose was wasn't attractive. It was very broad and flat. And as it got better and narrower and, and more aesthetic, it did get better. But then he did what so many patients do, is they, he won't, wouldn't stop. He kept going and going right. until he had to tape his cheeks out at night because he couldn't breathe. It got so narrow and bizarre. And you're right, he found someone who was right. willing to do it. Right. Well, we need to, uh, we're coming to the end of the show, and I want to make sure that you have time to tell people where you would like them to purchase your book, where, what website you would like them to go to to find out more about you, and so on. My own website is drconstantian.com, drconstantian.com, and they can find out about me uh, there if they're interested. Um, and the book is available at Amazon or any of the large commercial sellers. Okay, and, and I would suggest that it's a good idea, even if, um, for my listeners, even if you're not thinking of, of having any kind of plastic surgery, and really, who isn't? <laughs> everybody, because of advertising these days, everybody is made to feel that there is some part of their body that needs to be fixed. But in any case, if you are not thinking about really seriously having plastic surgery, which I hope most of you aren't, not that there's anything wrong with plastic surgery, but, but I hope you're not obsessed, um, uh, then um, I think this is a good read just in terms of the psychological aspects and how what happens to us as children does affect us um, in all kinds of ways in our lives as we grow up. And wanting to fix our body, I mean, that's kind of part of it too, that it seems easier for people to think about fixing their body, you know, having, not that surgery, you know, is... Uh, necessarily pleasant, but still, it's easier to fix your body, some people think, than it is to fix your mind. And it is true that um, <laughs> fixing your body and surgery has a kind of physical pain, but um, psychotherapy, long-term psychotherapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, talk therapy, uh, is painful in another way. It is painful to reprocess or re-experience some of these painful events from your childhood, but that is the only way to get yourself cured of these kinds of um, horrible memories by, by crying about them again, screaming about them again, going through them again, is the way to um, feeling at peace with yourself and not going back time and time again for more rhinoplasties. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think no, that anyone well, the distinction really is the motivation. To, yes. Well, I just want to make it clear that I am not at all against plastic surgery if there is something that makes you really unhappy about yourself that can be fixed. And if, I mean, I'll never forget, I had a childhood friend who had a rhinoplasty, and it really turned out not to be so great, but she thought it was beautiful, and it changed her whole life. So That's I right. am not at all against plastic surgery. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Constantian, um, for being a guest on the show. And again, the book is called Child Abuse, Body Shame, and Addictive Plastic Surgery, the Face of Trauma. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. 
And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 